Well, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. We're continuing our studies uh, briefly in this wonderful book of the Bible. Every book of the Bible is wonderful, but you know what I mean. And um, <clears throat> we've seen uh, just glimpses of the fact that the letter is meeting a pastoral need. Um, the writer is exhorting his readers to keep going in the Christian faith, many of these readers being converted from a Jewish background. They're Jewish Christians who would have been uh, worshipping through Judaism. And what he's doing as part of his exhortation is to show the supremacy of Christ. We've seen in chapter 1 Christ's supremacy as the Son of God. In chapter 2, Christ's supremacy as the Son of Man, as the second Adam, made a little lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor as he tasted death for every man. And now we come in the beginning part of chapter 3 to a third uh, supremacy, to a third area, which is Christ as the supreme apostle. And then in the second part or the second two-thirds of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 there is a, an extended exhortation before we come back to the theme of supremacy again in chapter 5 when he is speaking on Christ as our supreme high priest. But here as he brings encouragement and exhortation you'll notice that there's a very important word in the book of Hebrews, it's the word that's translated sometimes as therefore and sometimes as wherefore. In, in other words, in the light of all that I've said, this is the application. And we start off in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, in the light of what I've said as this Christ, as the supreme son of God, as the supreme uh, son of man, and in the fact that he's such a, a great high priest as as our second Adam, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Notice how he addresses his hearers, his readers, and he addresses us. He is not bullying us. He's not laying it on us in some sort of naked authority. He speaks to the people of God in, in terms that exalt us and remind us that we're brothers in Christ and that we've been set apart as those that have heard the calling of the gospel and that are following Christ all the way to heaven. It's a wonderful way in which he speaks to us and reminds us as to how authority and governance should be exercised within the church of Jesus Christ. There's no place for petty tyrants. There's no place for lording it over the consciences of people. It's as brothers in Christ as fellow partakers of the heavenly calling that he speaks. And his exhortation is that we should consider, that we should not just glance at, but we should hold fast in our thinking. We should concentrate and focus in our thinking upon Jesus Christ as the apostle and high priest of our profession. Inasmuch as verses 1 to 6 particularly are on the matter of Christ as an apostle, I tend to think that uh, high priest here 
um, is just an aside because, of course, this is a letter. It's not a, an essay. It's a, a letter. And he's, he's, in his mind, he's got Moses. And so it's automatic to think also of Aaron as a high priest. And so Moses and Aaron together in his mind, but he's going to develop the thought of Jesus as our great high priest in a later chapter. And it's more Jesus as the apostle that we're looking at in verses 1 to 6. Now this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is called distinctively an apostle, or should we say the apostle. And it leads us to think, what does this word mean? The word apostle means a sent one, simply that. And if it were not so misleading, and people have used it misleadingly, it could be a word that we could legitimately use today, for example, of missionaries. They are sent ones. It's the same uh, meaning uh, in Latin, a missionary, a sent one. It's the same meaning, essentially, but it's confusing, I know, so we don't tend to speak in those terms, and rightly so, of missionaries. But that's what it means, a sent one. And Jesus Christ is supremely the one sent by God. So, for example, in John chapter 17, he says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Christ is the one supremely who has been sent by the Father. And the exhortation here is that if we are Christians, we are to lay hold on him as the one supremely sent by the Father. And you can see that the pastoral aspect here of Jewish Christians who are beginning to find it hard going and maybe wanting to go back to Judaism that there is a pastoral emphasis here because what he's saying is that Jesus is supremely the sent one. Moses, yes, he was a sent one, but not the supreme sent one, not the supreme apostle. And so in these few verses, the writer is actually contrasting Jesus with another normative apostle in redemption history. He's contrasting two great sent ones, two great leaders. There's Moses, and then there's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what these verses are about is a comparison and a contrast between the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses. Now I say it's a comparison. Uh, a contrast is where you just bring out the differences. A comparison is where you bring out the similarities as well as the differences. And technically, this is comparison as well as contrast. Because there are things that the writer wants us to know about Christ which are the same as Moses or very similar to Moses. Firstly, consider this similarity. That like Moses, Jesus was faithful. <coughs> as it says in verse 2, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, that is to God, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The Father appointed Christ, the Father sent Christ, and both Jesus and Moses 
were faithful. And then again, it's repeated in verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So he's not starting out here by telling us all the differences. He's starting out by saying, well, here's something which you know about Moses, and I'm reminding you about Moses, that he was faithful. Now, it's interesting to see where this particular statement about Moses arises in the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch. And it is actually harking back to Numbers chapter 12, where the temptation upon Moses to be unfaithful was very great. If you like, this is a good specimen case of how faithful Moses was in Numbers chapter 12, when a rebellion arose against Moses within the congregation, and not now within some of the uh, tribes and so on, but even from amongst his nearest and de dearest, his sister and his brother Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman, and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And then we have this testimony given in the book of Numbers. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. He was a very gentle, humble man. And then God comes in a pillar, we're told, in a pillar of, the, of clouds to the door of the tabernacle. And he gathers Aaron and Miriam and he says this to them. Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. There will be a, a, a peculiar, particular intimacy in the way in which I I reveal myself to him and through him because he is an apostle. He's a sent one. He's the mediator of the old covenant. That's another expression that could be used of Moses. And in the context, he's faithful. He's showing his faithfulness here in the way in which he is responding meekly and humbly to this situation. And later on he shows his compassion as he cries to God to heal Miriam of her leprosy, which she is struck down with. And so we have here, although Moses, we know, was not perfect, and there, was a, there were one or two times when he didn't do so well, yet basically it's said of him that he was faithful in his house or in his household. And there seems to be really a, an, in, a, an area here of ambiguity as to whether it means house in terms of a building or whether it means a household in terms of the people indwelling the building. Uh, both ideas are present, it seems, in this passage. I don't think we need worry too much about that slight uh, difference there or uh, ambiguity. So Moses was faithful 
And Jesus is faithful. He was faithful to him that appointed him. And you can see the pastoral thing coming through here. How about you Christians? How about you facing all the discouragements and difficulties of living for Christ in a persecuting environment? How about you living for Christ when you're facing economic difficulties, when you're facing the loss of your possessions and the loss of your employment, and even worse, just remember that Moses was faithful and Jesus was faithful. And this is something he's going to return to later in the book as he, uh, as he exhorts his readers to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame he set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He had to go all the way to the cross and through the cross, through that blood and through that suffering, before he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you have to be faithful. And we have to be faithful. And it's not easy, is it? It's not easy in a world that's suffering from a pandemic. It's not easy in a society that's dislocated. It's not easy when we cannot meet and when we cannot work for the Lord in the way, way we exactly used to do and when there are so many restrictions on us and there are frustrations and there are other difficulties. And that's really before we even get to the aspect of persecution. But we are living... In 2020, when we have to be faithful to Christ. So that's the first thing. There's a comparison here. There's a similarity. And then the second thing. This is more of a contrast. Both Moses and Jesus came to serve. Certainly Moses, verse 5. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant as a servant. But the contrast is in verse 6 but Christ as a son over his own house. Well, there's, there's no different, there's no comparison, is there? In the one case, a servant in the household, in the other case, the son, the firstborn. Now we know if we read our biographies and so on, that sometimes particularly in households that are aristocratic or well-off, that housekeepers and nannies and cooks can be very important people, especially if the father is off and never at home and uh, you've only got to read the life of someone like Winston Churchill, for example, to realize how important the housekeeper was in his upbringing. And that could be said of a number of other important people. And sometimes they are important and they, they do a wonderful work, but it's not the same as being the firstborn or indeed the father of the family. Whatever you could say about Moses as a faithful servant, as a faithful prophet, as a faithful leader, it doesn't compare with Jesus who brings the whole house into existence. It doesn't compare with the one whose blood was shed as typified in the slaying of the Passover lamb, 
in order to bring Israel out of Egypt. There wouldn't be an Israel, there wouldn't be a brought out and brought out people unless there had been a Passover lamb and unless there had been that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud and that manna and that water to drink in the desert, all of which symbolized and, and brought to them the presence of Jesus Christ. There's no comparison. Yes, Moses was great, but don't treat him as though he's the one who brings the house into existence. It's Jesus Christ who has more glory for this man, that is Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. Moses didn't shed his blood to build it. Jesus Christ has shed his blood to build it. It isn't through Moses, it isn't through the law that we are born again. It's through Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It isn't through doing our best and moral effort that we become the sons of God, but it's through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from Jesus Christ that we become the sons of God. It isn't Moses who builds the church, it's Christ who builds the church. He is a son over the church. Oh, how we need to be so careful who it is we are following in our Christian lives and in our church life. Are we just following men? Are we just following particular slants in teaching, particular emphases, particular conferences or celebrities? Or are we following the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a subtle thing, isn't it? To take our eyes off Jesus and to come to perhaps, yes, sir, what a servant Moses was. But to take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and to fix them on some preacher or some teacher who may have been greatly blessed, but it's not them who built the house. It's Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And are you following him? Does he have the supreme place in your heart and mind? He is the sent one. He is the apostle. And then a third contrast. Moses was a prophet. No question of that. As we read in Numbers 12, God spoke intimately to him face to face. Not through obscure means like dreams and visions, but uh, much more face to face. And he brought God's words, delivered God's word. But Jesus is God's word. Jesus is the message. He that built all things is, a, is God. And then Moses was a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. What are those things which were to be spoken after? He means the gospel. He's talking about these last days, this present age, this gospel age. Moses gave testimony through his prophecies and through type and through shadow, uh, speaking theologically, through type and shadow he gave testimony 
to these last days to Christ. But it's Christ who is the message. This is the very theme with which the letter opens up. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds. Moses wasn't that message. But Jesus Christ is that message. And we need to re-evaluate, of course, in the light of what the writer is saying here, in the light of the New Testament teaching, we need to re-evaluate how we read Moses. Moses knows he has one great task to do, which is to point to Christ. There are other things that are kind of side issues, and important side issues, very important side issues. I don't want to underplay those. But supremely, he is a prophet who is pointing to a greater prophet. Supremely, he is a messenger who is pointing to the message. And so whether it is through the sacrificial system or through the tabernacle or through the priestly system that under God he is the mediator of setting up, in all these things he is by type and by anticipation he is predicting the coming of Christ who is the sacrifice, Christ who is the high priest and Christ who is ultimately the church, the the head of the body. So for example, and it's only a a brief example, we can turn to uh, the last blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And when we see Moses in this way, we read such a passage as this with new eyes. We see that he's not just speaking here as he blesses all the tribes. He's not just speaking here of, of an Old Testament people. But really, what he is saying in Old Testament terms is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that God hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and all the blessings are here itemized in terms of blessings to the tribes. And so we come to verse 12. This is a well-known blessing. The blessing of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And you say, that's not just for Benjamin, that's for me as a believer. The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him. is a lovely promise. You're absolutely right. It's for a believer in Christ. The Lord shall cover him all the day long. That's a military metaphor. Dwelling between his shoulders. Yes, you're strong in Christ. And then when you read on in the next blessing, the blessing on Joseph. And you read about the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush in verse 16. Yes, that's the the bush that burned but was not consumed. Who was it in the midst of that bush? It was Yahweh. It was a revelation of God a revelation indeed of Christ through whom we see God and know God. And that's how to read Deuteronomy 33 and indeed how to read our Old Testament. You see, they're not to go back and follow Moses. 
They're to follow Christ. What a temptation it is to reconvert to whatever traditions or whatever religion you came from. And make no mistake, that temptation can come late in life as well as early in life. A temptation to reconvert. My parents, you say, were this particular religion and traditions? Well, I might as well die where they were. And sometimes Satan will tell you things were much better when you, you used to do it your own way. Do not underestimate the power of this temptation. It will come sooner or later, probably, in your life. And when it comes, may you remember what the writer is saying here. Consider the apostle of our confession, of our profession, Jesus Christ. May you remember that. May you remember the application. By God's grace, fix your eyes on Jesus and fix your eyes right until the end. Notice in verse 6 that phrase, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That means the end of your life. That means right, right to the end until you die or till Jesus returns. There's a confession, you see. There's a profession that we make as Christians. It's a tremendous privilege to confess Christ, to confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord that Jesus Christ is my saviour, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. When everybody else is swimming in the opposite direction, you are not going to do that. You are going to profess Christ, to confess Christ. It's a phrase that comes up more than once in the letter to the Hebrews. And remember Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he makes this point that Jesus Christ witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's left us that example too. As our apostle, as our sent one, he left us that example that before Pontius Pilate, knowing what it would mean in terms of suffering and death, he still witnessed a good confession. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Hold on. Keep at it firm to the end. And we have a supreme one to follow. And as he will later return to the theme, not only of one, as it were, who, who is ahead of us, but also one who is alongside us as our great high priest. Just hold on. You know, the Christian life is not climb every mountain, cross every sea. You know, whatever mountains come, we'll just zip over them. Whatever seas comes, we'll just somehow get across. Sometimes it's just keep plodding on. Keep going. Because that's exactly what our apostle did. As he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, that's exactly what he did. He wasn't climbing over every mountain and crossing every sea in some sort of romantic way. He was just plodding on, setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, the place of slaughter, the place of suffering 
and atonement. We're to be the same, brothers and sisters in Christ.